you can spend a thousand dollars on a knife. You can spend one hundred and twenty dollars on an apron or a chef coat or a knife roll. But why don't you take that money and go eat? Because the more you eat out, the more you experience food from the guest perspective, the more you're going to understand cohesiveness of dishes and when they eat the table, why temperatures and textures, placement, plating, lighting, descript, menu description, why all of that is so important. I have never um, understood menus so much more than after I began reading menu descriptions from all over the country and understanding why certain words went with each other to make dishes sound delicious rather than atrocious, right? It's really just experiencing food in that way. You know, a great musician is inspired by by music and listens to music all the time. A great writer reads often. You know, a, a great chef should be eating out as much as they can and experiencing food from so many different places. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 71 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. My guest this week is pastry chef Philip Speer, owner of Comedor in Austin, Texas. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche, and if you are new to this podcast, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in the US and in Europe. And every other week, I share inspirational stories, successes, failures of US-renowned culinary leaders, and how their cultural identity shaped their creative process. In this episode, Philip Spear presents the concept of Comedor in Austin. He talks about his Mexican background and how it inspires some of the sweet concept at Comedor, how to achieve taste balancing in a dessert, and he talks very openly about his past addiction and the drastic change he made in his life back in 2014. You can find this episode on the website flavorsunknown.com and please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at flavorsunknown. Hi, Chef. Welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. Hello. How are you today? I'm very good. I'm very excited to uh, to have you on the show. It's very kind of you to accept my invitation to uh, be part of it. Absolutely. And I'm grateful to be here as well and uh, have a conversation with you about about food and, and the affairs of the restaurants. You are the corner of a place called like the Comedor in, in Austin. So can you talk to us a little bit about what it is? and describe the concept to uh, the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Comedor is a Mexican restaurant here in downtown Austin, Texas. I'm actually sitting um, right next to the restaurant now in, my, in our offices. We are a, a, a restaurant that, you know, gratefully has been very successful so far in, in, in the restaurant community here in Austin. We've only been open for a little less than two years now, but as everyone else, we've spent the last year in a pandemic. So it's been a very interesting time to be open and to spend half of our young life in a pandemic. We created the restaurant in 2018 and built the, the restaurant with architect Tom Kundig of the Olsen Kundig firm in Seattle. So we're very excited to be able to bring that architecture firm to to Austin. This was their first uh, restaurant that they, they had ever done in this part of the country. It's a beautiful place. I mean, I, I in space, I've been, I was lucky to, to have um, dinner there and you know when you arrive and you you don't know first it's the restaurant so if it's a museum an art museum 
you know, a gallery. It's uh, it's really cool. Yeah, we, we well, we wanted there to be um, an element of, of surprise and discovery when you walked in the building. So we made the um, exterior very nondescript. We used this very cool glass brick that you um, only a couple of places in North America have even ever used, which gives this sort of opaque opaqueness to the exterior, but it's, you can still feel the energy going on on the inside without being able to see in. Otherwise, there are no windows other than the 32-foot high ceiling, which is a window glass box. It's hard to visually, how, how, to, to articulate the- to describe it, yeah. But, you know, as you walk in, you it, it, it opens up into this, to this huge 32-foot vaulted ceiling, all glass. And then we have an indoor courtyard. And that indoor courtyard was taken by a lot of inspiration from trips uh, to Mexico City. And when we worked with uh, the architect, we really wanted to bring that feeling as we really enjoyed the the, the restaurant, the, the, the culture and lifestyle together in different parts of Mexico, but specifically this Mexico City style. And wanted to make sure that, you know, when you were discovering the space, the the concept of the entire restaurant, including the beverage and the food components and the service component, all met that sense of, of, of wow. So when we built the culinary program, you know, we had that in mind as well. So we wanted the whole concept to be co- cohesive. We wanted it to be an experience that transported you out of out of the, the world and downtown Austin and into this this experience of of amazing drink, food, service, and atmosphere. You know, you you described it as a, a Mexican restaurant, but, you know, this is really an evolution of like the traditional Mexican food. So can you tell us what's the inspiration behind it of the, the food concepts? Uh, you know, it could be like when I say food or culinary concepts of drinks, like savory dishes and desserts, obviously. Absolutely. I mean, it was it, it was a combination of the entire team that came together to build the culinary concept, ultimately led by myself and, and with with um, a lot of um, guidance from my business partner as well. And, you know, we are a collaborative atmosphere. You know, everything we built, we wanted to build with with tradition and soul in at least the techniques in which we presented everything. You know, we 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 use the greatest corn from different small farms in Mexico sourced by Tamoa which is an organization in Mexico City that brings us the, the best of all the surplus heritage corn from, from different small farms and communities um, throughout Mexico. You know, we mix them alive in-house. You know, all of our processes are done in a very traditional ways. The techniques are very traditional, but, you know, and, and the soul of the cuisine is Mexican in, in its heart and soul. But, we, you know, we use local ingredients. I would say 80% of anything that comes in the door is from you know, within 100 miles or so, unless we're talking about some of our Gulf seafood or the products that we source from, you know, whether it's our Oaxacan quesillo that comes from Oaxaca or our huilacoche, which also comes from a small farm in Oaxaca or our corn uh, from the different parts of Mexico. So, you know, we, we're using those ingredients that, that are true to, to the tradition, true to the culture, and we're using those techniques. However, the, some of the flavors may may go outside of the traditional realm of what you think of, of, of Mexican food, but not in a way of, of fusion or anything like that, just in the way of celebrating the products that are local to us with that same intention and Mexican soul and tra- tradition and technique. So how do you integrate your own like Mexican you know family heritage in the inspiration of the especially like the dessert, you know, part of, uh, of the menu? Uh, you know, personally, I grew up in, in South Texas, um, in the Rio Grande Valley. And, you know, my, my, my family heritage 
is is half Mexican on my on my mother's side, and we grew up very much experiencing that that Mexican culture and the and the more of the Texas style of Mexican culture. Um, we do not really do the Tex Mex food here at Comedor. It's more of a traditional uh, Mexican flavors. However, growing up in in the culture of, of family and sharing and and coming together around around the table to share meals, you know, Comedor is a dining table or a dining place where you come together and, and sharing those experiences. There are definitely nuances of flavors that come through in that, especially in, in making desserts and whatnot. But really more than anything, it's, it's, it's a broader look at like the feeling and the culture of, of sharing this kind of food in the way that, that I grew up. You know, I didn't grow up traveling Mexico, eating amazing dishes all over Mexico, uh, nor will I pretend like I did. But I did grow up eating a, a lot of Mexican food, a lot of it with Texas influences. And you will see some of those flavors sneak into our our menu, but not in the way that you would think of a traditional Tex-Mex of, you know, like melted, like lots of melty yellow cheese and, and can you give us an example, uh, maybe of uh, things that you have done on the dessert side that illustrates your just what you are describing? Yeah, so one of the a really fun dessert we do is our chocolate tamal, and that really brings flavors and ideas from not only you know places I grew up, places some of the other chefs grew up as well. Because as I said, this has always been collaborative, but also from some of the other restaurants I worked at. So one of my favorite desserts of all time is uh, I worked for Jean Georges for a brief period of time, and the the molten lava cake is you know a classic Jean Georges, or he's credited with that dessert. And so that's a classic John George dessert. It's one of my very, very favorite desserts. So I wanted to kind of a mimic of what that was, but in the sense of comedor. And so what we did is we made a tamal, a chocolate tamal, or as you may know, a tamale set in, in the U.S. But this chocolate tamal made with uh, mixed masa and black cocoa. And, you know, we did it in the tradition of what you would do, uh, a savory tamal, but instead of the filling being a uh, meat or vegetable filling, we did a, a chocolate filling. We then steamed it, did it in this sphere, and then inside the sphere we have this sphere of, of delicious Barona chocolate. We then steam it, hold it, then we steam it again to order right before the pickup. And then when you cut into it, you have this kind of savory, bitter, but a little bit of sweetness exterior of this masa. Then you get like the stone ground corn masa flavor, and then it goes this molten dark chocolate filling like you would a chocolate lava cake and we paired it with a caramelized milk ice cream and then rolled that in candied sesame candied amaranth and rice crisp and so that is traditional to some things that i used to eat in south texas called alegria which is this like almost granola like candy that is very traditional uh, on the border of mexico and it's this crunchy candy with car with bits of caramel in it and so I took, I made a play on that and rolled it into the into the ice cream. So you have all the textures and some sweetness, and yeah, contrasts, yeah, yeah, fatty. Um, you have some savory notes. It's a really great, and that's how I look at a lot of desserts: is how can we incorporate all the textures, all the flavors, all the temperatures? You know, I want every bite to be its own experience, but I also want it to be very cohesive. I like the description of the dessert because, you know, in my mind, obviously, with everything that you're describing, it's not like overly sweetened. And I always have issues, you know, when I go to, you know, nice restaurants and it's the time of, you know, ordering the dessert and I go through the menu and I'm like, oh, gosh, it's I have a hard time this finishing my 
great meal with something which is overly too sweetened. So how do you balance that, you know, those elements of sweetness and saltiness and bitterness and or sourness and, and give like the customer like this great experience after they have eaten, I don't know how many, you know, already dishes, you know? You know, fin- finishing your meal after five to eight to 10 courses and still not wanting to, to overdo it. And I think that's a lot of, I mean, really what you said is it is, is what that, what is that balance, right? That balance between striking that perfect balance of, of acidity and salty, you know, a little bit of sweetness. You, you know, you want your dessert to have some sweetness, but it doesn't need to be overly sweet. I also think about what I want to eat. And I too, um, I'm the kind of person that doesn't like to be kind of overdone with these sweet, sweet desserts at dinner uh, when dinner's over or anything too, too rich to decadent. Although, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some rich things I like. That chocolate molten cake is a rich dessert. But can we balance that? Can we lighten it up a little? Can we add some textures that take it away from something that's just too dense or too creamy, right? And when you start playing with that and, and, and put it cohesively put together something that has multi textures and you know it's it's a little more playful on the palate and you can get a good good balance of, of all those flavors and textures. You know, how do you think about desserts on the spectrum of like, you know, from sweet to to savory? And do you have any examples in your career where you are incorporating, you know, savory ingredients in uh, in your pastries or like, you know, or dessert? Oh, I mean yeah, I have a, a lot of examples in my career, but <laughs> In which I did that. I would even go as far as to say most of my career has been playing with that line between savory and sweet desserts. I just actually we had one of our young cooks just made a dish for me, and it was a it was a black garlic ice cream with some other components. And I thought you would like this, chef, and I did. I did. I enjoyed it very much. Um, I've been trying to incorporate salsa matcha into a uh, into a, a dessert here on the menu. And it still just always eats just a little too savory. I got to dial it back. But some other examples of, of successful attempts in that in my career, you know, one of the most popular desserts I ever did at, at Uchi was a it was a peanut butter semifredo, and it had this really delicious miso. And this was you know back in like 2004, so this was this was a while back when we were really starting to play a little bit more with the with the savory flavors. When I was taking the taking the lead from amazing pastry chefs such as Sam Mason or or Jordan Kahn, or these guys who are really incorporating these uh, savory flavors into their into their desserts at like WD fifty, and then later on Taylor Restaurant, and kind of just blurring that line. I've used curries and in desserts and and different fats from different animals that you may not see. One dessert that I had a lot of fun with was a play on a tom ka, which is a Thai a, a Thai dish that uh, utilizes so many different delicious ingredients. But one of the when you really break the ingredients down, you see coconut milk and, and galangal and ginger and basil and cilantro and these flavors that really lend well to dessert, um, if you think about them in the right way, lime. And, and so I did a, a, a play on a tom ka that had this toasted rice toasted rice sorbet with, with coconut milk and galangal and ginger and all these delicious flavors that went around a, a, a warm bowl of, of tom ka. So I just think there's so many ways that you can introduce the savory elements into to dessert but most of it comes from just inspiration of a dish like oh i really love this dish. is there a way to make what more can we do with it but how far can we go uh, can you go because uh, you know at the end of the day obviously it has to appeal to your uh, you know patrons and uh, you make sure that they they are buying the you know what they are reading in fact on the menu by eating <laughs> by yeah. eating and understanding and when you're there and you're eating and you're involving the other chefs or the other cooks and you're like, okay, cool. Well, we all like this. And you go to your staff 
uh, your front of house staff and who has the, you know, the front of house staff are the closest hand to the guests, right? They have the real feedback. When I, as the chef, especially as a chef, you know, as a chef owner, when I walk up to a table and say, hey, how is your evening, sir, ma'am? They're all most nine times out of 10, they're going to tell me it's excellent, whether or not it is. However, they may tell one of the servers, well, I didn't really like this, or I didn't really like this. So they're, they're the best feedback. And you really have to listen to that feedback as a great chef. So I then take it to them and see what their feedback is. And then, you know, then maybe you have some regulars that you're like, hey, you know, hey, regular, regular customer of mine, would you like to try this dessert that I'm messing with? And then they eat it. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. Or like, oh, what have you done here? So it's just really incorporating feedback and having that collaborative atmosphere. I think that's super helpful when you when you get a little bit too inside of your own head and start making dishes and, and thinking that they're they're amazing, but without getting other feedback, you may you may end up a little one note because or a little bit out just out there entirely. That feedback's very necessary. It's that it's collaboration. It's thinking from a guest perspective. You know, I tell young cooks all the time. You can spend a thousand dollars on a knife. You can spend one hundred and twenty dollars on an apron or a chef coat or a knife roll. But why don't you take that money and go eat? Because the more you eat out, the more you experience food from the guest perspective, the more you're going to understand cohesiveness of dishes and when they eat the table, why temperatures and textures, placement, plating, lighting, descript menu description, why all of that is so important. I have never um, understood menus so much more than after I began reading menu descriptions from all over the country, why certain words went with each other to make dishes sound delicious rather than atrocious, right? And so it's, it's, it's really just experiencing food in that way. You know, a great musician is inspired by, by music and listens to music all the time. A great writer reads often. You know, a, a great chef should be eating out as much as they can and experiencing food from so many different um, places. Do you think this is um, more important for like the, you know, young cooks or young pastry chef to travel and stage at different places, um, you know, in the country or around the world? Instead of going to, let's say, culinary school, for instance, and spending a lot of money, what's your what's your take on that? Absolutely, you know, I, I, I personally did not go to culinary school. I have worked with many great chefs and cooks who have both gone to and not gone to culinary school. Either has different results, but I think you know, if you have an opportunity to take forty to sixty thousand dollars and travel and eat and experience food and stage, yeah, absolutely. But you know, those days of staging like that are pretty much we're, we're dwindling those days. It's not as much of a open practice as it used to be. And I also believe that people don't, you know, on, on the ownership and chef side, unfortunately, I think there's some taking advantage of the situations. And then on the chef and cook side, I think they're, you know, on the cook side, I think there's um, not really understanding why it's important. So I think that we're kind of losing the magic of what a stage used to be and can be, but I don't know if we'll get that back and that's okay eat out. You know, you, you say we can't travel right now and we shouldn't be spending much time in restaurants. We shouldn't be spending much time at all. But even if you don't have the money to travel, you can take a pretty interesting trip in your own city. I guarantee you there's dozens of restaurants you haven't tried that could show you an experience that you've never seen. And that's a fun, especially if you're in larger cities, taking a trip to another part of town you've never been, been in and, and eating some of those, those restaurants. One joke I always make to my kids is like, and when I say my kids, I mean my children, uh, my, my children. But it's also other young cooks is like, you know, when someone opens a restaurant, 
nine times out of 10, they think it's because they have something that is amazing. And someone has told them that it was great. So generally speaking, food that you get at a restaurant, somebody somewhere likes, <laughs> right? Somebody has been inspired or encouraged to open a restaurant. And I'm not talking about chain restaurants that you see in every corner. I'm talking about someone, a small restaurant that somebody's opened. Mostly they opened it because they have passion, love, and drive for what they do. And they've convinced people around them the same. All of those are worth experiencing, in my opinion. You may not like them all. And you know what? Some may be awful. But for the most part, they've started with something that is important to somebody, whether it's a piece of their culture, a piece of their heritage, a piece of their family, and they've brought it to the, to the public. Now, whether or not they've succeeded in execution of that is a different story. But I love experiencing all kinds of restaurants for, those, for that reason. So what uh, compelled you to become um, a pastry chef? I mean, I, there's a few different stories that I tell. <laughs> but most of them, most of them, pretty true. Like most of them, pretty dialed in. I mean, they all they're all true stories. But which came first, I'm not exactly sure. I, you know, the romantic story is that I grew up with some friends in Chicago. Uh, my mom moved to Chicago when I was pretty young, so I, we 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 were still in South Texas with my dad. My mom was in Chicago, and I would spend time up there. And there was a family and. The parents of the friends I was with, they were her father was a, a pastry chef, and you know it was an amazing life. Uh, it looked so glamorous from the outside, but also you know we had other family friends who were in the restaurant business. My mom, she was she worked for a specialty foods company and sold sold chocolates and and cheeses and other high end specialty oils and, and, and such to, to restaurants. And I just I kind of got a taste for the food and, and restaurant life early. You know, I have a less traditional path of education. I did not spend much pay much attention to to the traditional schooling system. So, you know, when I left my house at a young age, sixteen to be exact, and moved to a different city, which was Austin. You know, one of the only jobs that I could obtain was a, a job in a restaurant or a kitchen. You know, and, and for in that time, in that generation, which was the early nineties. That's generally who was in kitchens. It was people. There were, you know, there were chefs who had gone to culinary school, but most of the cooks and, and people who worked work in the kitchens were. It was pretty transient. You know, there were people who were in, in you know, the front of house. You had a lot of students. In the back of the house, you had a lot of dropouts and maybe maybe even convicts, right? Because it was a job that that it was a labor. It was very much a laborer job at the time, but it was also a laborer job that had artistic and passion and drive and. and you know, had culture and there was so much more you could do with it. And I think, you know, through that time, you saw, saw a real change in the restaurant industry. So you talk before, you know, about a gentleman called Sam Mason from, you know, Odd Fellows. And you mentioned to me in a prior discussion that you consider him to be one of your mentors. So what, what are like the one or two or three uh, people that uh, you cross paths, you know, the, in your career that uh, you consider mentor like Sam and what, what did you learn from them? It's funny that when I say I consider Sam, uh, Chef Sam, Sam Mason a mentor uh, for multiple reasons. One of them was because, you know, I never worked for him. We ended up getting to work side by side uh, at a few different times over the, over the years. He was, it was at that time in early 2000, it was, it was when Twitter was, was, was blowing up and we were able to communicate with each other all over the country. So I was communicating with, with many chefs all over the country and it was open, it was open, it was fun and it was exciting and we were all sharing information. And I was able to develop a relationship with Sam and, and he became a, a mentor from afar, a Twitter mentor. Even. But he was always open and available to answer questions about, you know, at that time, you know, hydrocolloids and, and 
for the ways that that time correct correct it was right before Taylor opened and um, so just a lot of te- technique questions and then just playing with flavors and ideas and visiting you know I was I was lucky to be with a successful restaurant that had had gained some recognition so we were able to travel a lot other important people in my career and in my life were, were Tyson Cole and Paul Key the three of us really you know through through maybe 2004 to 2012 2011 were able to do some really what I consider to be some really amazing things with food from a perspective in our community that hadn't really been achieved yet. And to be part of that was amazing. It was, again, 100% collaborative with everything that was going on in those buildings for Suchi and the Nuchiko. And so Paul Key and, and, and Tyson Cole are, are big mentors of mine and both continue to be great friends and mentors in, in, in not only life, but in food. Brian Caswell worked, he was the chef, he worked for Jean Georges for a long time. He was the chef cuisine. Bank Sons was where I worked, and he was a great mentor to me. You know, that was the first hotel job I had ever had, and the first, like, really, you know, celebrity chef or, or, or at least high, high profile chef that I'd ever worked for, and being Jean George and understanding how to work in that style of kitchen uh, was very, very much changed my career and how to work in a hotel. In what way did it change your kind? It changed my perspective on, on, on that style of food. It, it made me understand more the regimen of, because, you know, it was a multi unit. John George has multi-units and there's a very specific specific style. There are recipe books that you follow. I, I understood a little bit more about organization. It was a little less free-for-all, a little less like, this is what we're going to make today. You know, it was very planned and, and implemented with rollout schedules. And, and it just, it taught me more of being a chef as someone who can plan and organize rather than just create. And I got a, a, a very strong education there through that. Okay. And by the way, Sam says hi. I talked to him like two days ago and uh, I told him that we would have a, you know, a recording session today. So he said, oh, yeah, tell, tell him hi. So. Awesome. Well, that's funny. I just spoke with, uh, I was, as I was pulling up to come inside and, and open up my computer, I was on the phone with Chef Michael Fotoge and he says hello to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, I like him. So how have you seen like the, um, the overall culture of the, of the restaurants and the food and the beverage, you know, communities change over your career? I see many workplaces having an evolution in the way that, the way that. Are you going into the right direction when you say that? Yeah, evolution. Yeah, I, I yeah. believe it's positive evolution then. We're, okay. seeing, we're seeing change in restaurant communities for many reasons. We're seeing change in in how the hierarchy, the traditional military brigades, uh, like the yelling in the restaurants, yes, is disappearing. Yes. Yes, we're taking into consideration more of the mental and physical health of of our of our employees and our coworkers, which is very important. We're understanding that. You know, people are coming to this job now because of a dr- love, a drive, and a passion, and, and wanting to make this a career, not not just sort of a last chance of, of of survival or work. Which you know, there was many people, at least in the U- in the U.S., where that was that was the case. Seeing a lot of a lot more focus, and in more of a renaissance way, I said it's an evolution, but really it's just kind of taking back to to the importance of the food and the local economies and local growers and farmers and, and the importance of that, and understanding the health of that food and how you know that kind of integrity and sourcing relates to integrity in the production of the food or the cooking and preparation of the food. We're seeing. Um, again, much more emphasis on mental health and making sure people in the, in the, even our chefs, you know, we don't, we're not commanding or expecting 90 hour work weeks anymore. 
80 hour work weeks, even 70 hour work weeks, although we still do them. You know, the expectation is much lower on the time that you need to put in and that work life balance is there's a lot more emphasis put on the importance of that when it comes to coming and performing at your highest, highest energy level and highest caliber. I can have a chef in here 90 hours a week, but I guarantee you his performance is not going to be as high as it would be at 55 hours a week. So we're understanding that. We're understanding that burnout's real, that the, the longevity uh, of us being in this career is drastically, drastically affected by that burnout point. You know, I, I would think that 20 years ago, most chefs in the U.S. probably left the industry by their mid-30s, early 40s. And now you're seeing, unless unless you were able to make it to that, you know, 2 to 5% that that had some sort of job where it was, you know, a higher paying job that was 45 hours a week, right? You, you're not seeing this like, it was a very much a young person's workplace, running around, stay, staying up late, working five to seven days a week every week without fail, working 12 to 15 hours a day, every day without fail. I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, you still see it in many places. And, and sometimes I still do it, but I understand that those comes in, in, in small in small increments and that it's important to get back to my family and back to my life. What, what are the issues that you, th- you still see in the industry and things that needs to change? Change growth is, is slow. It's uncomfortable. Change is inevitable, but again, it's uncomfortable. And, you know, I think that as as owners and management and as as peers we need to understand to be that vulnerability is important and being able to open up and have really important conversations in our industry you know it, it needs to be if someone is not feeling physically up to the task or mentally up to the task that should be said and not felt shame for feeling that way or saying something about it which is what we used to do we used to very much shame people into that and i think that just having an awareness and openness is it's, it's, we need to continue to push that. That's where we can grow. And as we grow, that change becomes less uncomfortable. There's less of a discomfort there and it's more embraced and celebrated. We should be celebrating the change in our industry, not not being afraid of it. I think there's a lot of fear of it because the way that restaurants were built in the United States and set up and beyond, but mainly in the US, you know, it, we're, we're reliant on on low wages and high labor, high labor output with low, with low wages. And I think there's a lot of fear of looking at how we can do that differently because we're afraid that it won't work anymore. But if we collectively, it will work, but it takes time and openness to do so and, and a period of discomfort to figure that out. So you you talked about uh, you know the the challenge and issues related to mental and physical you know health. So and and you have obviously a very personal story. Would you mind to like sharing it with us and and what made you drastically change you know your life back in 2014? Correct. October of 2014, I had had I woke up you know it was so textbook woke up in a ditch. Literally, I had had my fourth. DWI can I was I was facing my fourth DWI conviction after I had uh, was driving while intoxicated, being woken up by a, a a TV TV cameraman TV news cameraman filming me waking up in this ditch while the police were looking for me for my overturned car in the middle of of the freeway. I had flipped into a live gas or in the freeway feeder. I had flipped onto a live gas main and kind of shut down that whole part of the city and ran. Well, when I woke up. You know, in jail for the however manyest time that that had happened in my life, 
I knew my life was over. I knew I was going to be doing some serious prison time. It was a second felony. And I knew at that point, well, to be honest with you, I didn't even really know it. I, I assumed at that point it was time for a change. I didn't know the, the, the depth and magnitude of everything yet. I had just kind of gotten out of my my drunkenness. But over you know the course of the next few months, uh, through a treatment center, we have rehabilitation, both inpatient and outpatient, and a lot of support and, and meetings and, and support from family and a few, I mean, literally just a couple close friends. I was I, I made a major life change and, and, and had stopped drinking and smoking and being unhealthy in general, you know, drinking sodas, eating fast food. And I just made a complete overhaul on who I was. And I, I did it for multiple reasons. One, I just, you know, when I was in rehab, the the doctors, they told me that, you know, had I continued living in that way that I was going to have a very short life. I had type 2 diabetes, you know, heavy sleep apnea, was 100 pounds overweight, smoking a pack and a half of cigarettes a day, starting to get, you know, swelling in the liver from drinking. So it was very important that I had made it make a change immediately. And so I thought about my daughters and my life and, and what was important. Decided that, that that's what needed to happen. I also, you know, with, you know, full disclosure, and I'm pretty you know, I want to be really open about this through through some 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 ego and vanity. I, I had to show the world that I could change, and that was part of it. That's not part of it today, but it is. But part of showing the world what we do is inviting other people in. You know, it's no longer about me. It was about me for way too long. Through a program of recovery, I was able to have some real truths with myself and, and, and why I needed to make some changes, and I did so. So yeah, I now have six and a half years of sobriety. I can hope to have. A lifetime of it. I will take it one day at a time. And in the meantime, I will continue to try to provide resources, not only for the people closest to me, but the people in our restaurant, food and beverage community in Austin and beyond. Other resources, if they would like to make changes in their lives, I will continue to model the behavior and be pretty fucking showy about it when I want people to come and try something different. Okay. So what do you think that's this alcohol and drug addiction is a major issue, or it was obviously a major issue in in the hospitality industry. It's getting a little bit better, but it's still, you know, you know, a problem. Yeah, I would say it's still a problem. I think there has been change, and I think that change has not only uh, been in the restaurant industry uh, and food and beverage communities, but I think that that change is 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 just societal. You know, a lot of the younger, and I have some some children, so I'm seeing this and hearing this. A lot of the you know, a lot of our youth are staying away from drinking a little bit more. But that doesn't mean they're not doing other stupid stuff. The restaurant in our in our profession, you know, I have some pretty wacky beliefs about, you know, whether or not we are um, codependent on the restaurant industry or if the restaurant industry just attracts codependent people. And the food and beverage profession and communities specifically, you know, there are all sorts of reasons that you can attribute the, the behavior, whether it be the hours not only the long hours typically, but the hours in which we operate, right? So we are, you know, we are working until 11 p.m., 12 p.m., 1 a.m. You know, the access to activities when you get off work is limited, right? There's not a lot of open libraries and movie theaters at midnight. So what do you do? You go to a bar with your friends because you've just worked a, a busy service and you know, and, and everyone knows this story, right? This is nothing new. It's like, that's what you do. You have cash to burn. You have, you know, there's the whole laundry list of excuses of why restaurant professionals are susceptible to, to heavy partying. But I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, people who go in and they work the long hours and, and they dedicate their time and, and life to, to serving people and, and in the service and cooking for people and, 
and to that life of hospitality. It's a certain kind of person who has this openness to, to give. And when you're giving and giving and giving until you deplete yourself, you're trying to fill that with something else. And I think a lot of that is being filled with drugs and alcohol and acceptance and peers. And when everyone is going out and looking to nourish each other's souls with each other's souls, and that's generally happening around a bar or a picnic table with a crappy food truck and cigarettes and, and beers and shots, that's what you're going to go to because you're looking for that. You're looking for that fulfillment. So one thing that we're trying to do is create you know, new spaces for that fulfillment to be met, right? For those to be met because we have those needs. We have those needs of our community. We are hospitable people. We do want to surround ourselves with like-minded individuals and people who have passion. So what's and, the alternative then? Like for us specifically, we created the Commodore Run Club, which which is a, a new space, an all-inclusive space for people of all different athletic abilities that want to come and do something different and, and congregate and build community and camaraderie around something besides going to a bar. So we do it at 10 in the morning. So it's not super early, right? Most run clubs meet at 5 or 6 or something a.m. And, but it still allows people to get off work and, and, and get a little bit of rest. And, but maybe they go home and drink some water and say, Hey, I'm going to hang out with my work friends. But I'm going to hang out with them while we run around the block. And you know what? To some people, that sounds awful. And I totally get that. But that's one thing that we've done. There are other things you can do. You know, we've also created yoga classes for service industry um, professionals to come and partake and, and hang out. You know, unfortunately, COVID has changed some of that, but we'll be back in person yoga very, very soon. You know, we Bench Friends is, is a great example of a network. You know, Bench Friends isn't a program of recovery. Bench Friends is a network of people all over the country who have decided to be sober in the restaurant community, in their restaurant communities. And what we do is we meet and we talk and we hang out. And right now we hang out online. And that's what everyone's hanging out. So, you know, 23 hours a week in which you can do so. There are two to three meetings every day, seven days a week, where you can go and have communication, connection, network with other people in the food and service community that are going through similar struggles as you, right? You know, often when you're looking to, well, I don't want to hang out with this person. They don't know what it's like to be a chef. I don't want to go to AA. They don't, and I'm not saying that everyone needs to be sober. That is not my mission. My mission is not to make the restaurant community sober. My mission is to have people pay more attention to their physical and mental health and maybe make some healthier lifestyle decisions, thus allowing some time and space to start working on themselves and creating a little balance and boundary in what we want to give to the service and food and beverage community. We don't have to give it everything for it to be successful. We can make a living wage. We can have a balanced life. We can be healthy. We can hang out with each other outside of bars. We can connect with people across the country and talk about our struggles at work and why, how and why it can be different. And that's, that's what I want to do is create new spaces to do that, new spaces to fill that void that I think a lot of us have in the restaurant industry. I would like to pick up your brain. I always ask like um, the guests coming on the show to share, you know, with someone like me, like a foodie or home cook, you know, how I can uh, create like maybe for you, like a dessert that would have maybe like this modern Mexican influence and what unique spin would you suggest, you know, someone like me, you know, make? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many ways you can, you know, just with some of the ingredients you have at home and not saying, oh, you need to set up a whole pastry shop in your house. 
you know, doing things like taking tortillas and frying them lightly and tossing them with like cinnamon and sugar and maybe a little bit of you can buy cans of dulce de leche or you can make your own by by reducing sweetened condensed milk and and then putting different amazing in-season local fruits in there and you know just finishing that with maybe like a little bit of of, of a herb like papalo or you know epizote like these or oja santa, like these really delicious Mexican herbal flavors that lend well to fruits and, and, and sugar. Something like that is something great. You, do. you can buy a, a sponge cake from, not even a, you know, a sponge cake or a yellow cake from the grocery store and then take that home and then take some of that sweetened condensed milk or even I like to use like coconut milk and coconut cream and a little bit. I'm not vegan, so I'll put some milk in there as well, but create like a, a tres leches cake and get some like, if you're using coconut milk, maybe use some more exciting flavors like mango or papaya, something a little more tropical, and then soak your cake for four to six hours in these this milk mixture and then fresh fruits. And then you could do like some meringue or some whipped cream or just maybe some vanilla ice cream and create like a, a tres leches style dessert using very easily procured store, store procured ingredients. Just thinking about, you know, what I like to do is just think about, okay, what is a traditional Mexican dessert? What can I do? Or flavor and how can I duplicate that with things that are really accessible? You know, there are many, many communities across the U.S. who have no access to Mexican food. Crazy when you start to travel and travel up the the Midwest and even some of the Southern East Coast, and you go to stores and there's not you don't see anything, and you can just kind of create those some of the uh, mimic some of those flavors with, like I said, doing like dulce de leche and cinnamon and Mexican chocolate is is basically like flavors of almond and cinnamon and chocolate. You can melt chocolate and mix in like crushed almonds and some some coarse sugar and cinnamon and, and bring that back together and create like a Mexican chocolate flavor. Make yourself like a, a hot chocolate and do some, some some ice cream or some nice whipped cream in that. Those are some fun ways at home. You're making me hungry here. <laughs> you create those flavors and experience a, a, a Mexican-inspired dessert that you can make at home. Okay, thank you. So I'm going to finish the, uh, the our conversation with a series of rapid fire questions, if you will. So uh, you and I are going on a tasting tour in Austin and pretend that there's no COVID, obviously. What are like the five spots that you will take me to outside of, you know, Commodore? <laughs> of course. Five spots I would take you to. I would absolutely take you to Mixed, which is my... Uh, <laughs> Can I name five taco spots? Is that? <laughs> yeah, that, that's fine. I mean, I, I've been to Nixta, so I, yeah, yeah. I know. Okay, I think we need to for sure. Then we would have to go, we would definitely have to go to Little Ola's Biscuits. They're so, so amazing, uh, those biscuits. We would need to, we need to go eat my favorite pizza from 40 North, have the, the hot honey pizza there, which is incredible. We definitely would have to go to one of my favorite restaurants, Tycoon. You know, these are just my kind of heavy rotation places. That I love to go to. I love going to this uh, little Italian cafe in my neighborhood called um, Uncle Nicky's. You know, if we're gonna go get some really delicious higher end food, you know, there's there's so many uh, amazing restaurants here these days, and we're so grateful to to be able to celebrate those. I love always will always love the experience at uh, Immer and Rye, a restaurant which yep. I'm, sure, I'm sure you've been. They always do. They always do it right. Probably be my my tour. I'd throw in a couple other taco spots here and there. But uh, cool. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? <laughs> um, burgers. For sure. Okay. I have a, I low key have a, a burger list that I keep updated. 
in in Austin. And so I'm always, you know, I only I only do it once every few weeks. But I'll go have a burger and I'll and I'll I'll seek it out and I'll I'm constantly raking the ranking the burgers in Austin and I have a pretty pretty legit list right now. But if I had could choose one tomorrow to go eat and it was the last burger I was going to eat in Austin, I would go to Carpenter's Hall and have their their burger there. What are like three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career? Well, the first one would be the the Bo Freeberg pastry book. So it was a Bible, right? And it, I think a lot of culinary schools actually recommended that book, but it was it was a Bible for me for for many years in the '90s. The Alenia book changed my life. You know, that was the first I had I had developed relationships with many of these chefs at this time, but that was the first real like. All secrets exposed cookbook, and, then, and it was pretty amazing. You know, all the information was there. It was, it was, it was pretty intense. And then I would have to say Michelle Bras, the 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 one that I remember opening that book up in, I don't know, it was 1998, and just being blown away by the plating, the 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 emphasis on the ingredients, procurement of ingredients, and and how each vegetable is treated. And that to me was like the first, you know, I had had my pastry books, I had had, you know, the dessert professional, et cetera. But that was the first like book that was dedicated that I had seen that was dedicated to, to the, the celebration of each individual ingredient and putting it on a plate in a way that really changed my life. So when it comes to dessert inspiration coming from a foreign country, are you France or Japan? I will always be France and, and foundation. For pastry, for me, I mean, that's, that is, that is the foundation. And, you know, I started my career working in scratch bakeries. You know, I spent the first five, six years of my career really understanding how to bake and, and how to create pastries, how to, how and why bread works, how and why laminates work. And that's really just the base for me. So, you know, when, when you think about flavors and, and, and combination of, of ingredients and, and balance, you know, it's, it's for me, it's, it's Japan, right? And it's more Asian food. But when you think about foundation of technique, it's always going to go. It's going to go to to European and to France. Okay. Last one. What's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? I try not to get peeved in the kitchen anymore. To be, and I know that sounds so terrible. I mean, that sounds so lame to say. Like, I don't want to be pet peeved in the kitchen anymore. But I, I try to look at problems and understand why they're happening. But you know, the, the thing that I see the most that I want to change and fix is typically younger cooks and the understanding of how and why food is in front of them. I believe that most people walk into, uh, you know, the first few years they walk into a restaurant kitchen, they just hope, ex expect to open a door and just see food and not understand what it takes to get that food into the walk-in. If I were to call it a pet peeve, it would be the education, the, the, the culinary education system and really teaching young culinary minds the importance of understanding where the food comes from. That way, when you're, when you're preparing, prepping the food for service, you're understanding how much of that um, ingredient needs to be used, you know, what should be thrown away, how it should be respected, and why. And so that, that would be, I think, the biggest issue that I see that I would really like to, to change. Chef, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, all those experiences with us and being on the show. No, thank you so much. Thank you for reaching out. I'm happy we were able to do this. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Philip Spear, the pastry chef and owner of Comedor in Austin, Texas. Please do me a favor and share this episode with a colleague or a friend. My next guest will be Chef Dan Kluger from Loring Place in Manhattan. We will talk about flavors, taste balancing, and his new cookbook, 
chasing flavor. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.